Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. If you have your Bibles this evening, I'm going to ask you to join me in the book of Romans chapter 1. And... um, I'll read another passage of scripture in a few moments, and then we'll go to Acts 26, and that's where we'll camp out for a little while, and I'll let you define a little while. Amen. The book of Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm thankful for the gospel. Amen. Amen. I want on a regular basis to thank the Lord that I heard the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I am very thankful for that. You can be seated and let's just make a journey here together for a little while. I want to also read from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 8. And this is the apostle Paul again speaking, but he says... Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And so there's an underlying message to the church, and that is not to be ashamed, to be able to speak and raise our voice and declare the gospel with clarity. The scripture says, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare themselves to the battle? And so I will say again, as it has been said often, and especially as of late, but if ever there was a time for the church to be the church, it is the day in which we live. And so I want to speak against the spirit of fear that is dominating our society and say, Lord, we put our trust and our confidence in you. Amen. I am wanting to speak with clarity, wanting the church to speak with clarity and for us to lift up our voices as one. To walk circumspectly, again, as the Apostle Paul said, to ponder the path of our feet, as David wrote to us, that we should be careful and know where we are going and be intentional about what we're doing I'm going to venture to say that you didn't just wake up here a moment ago and find yourself in church, but you intended to be here and you didn't just join in out of guilt through our praise and worship to lift your voice or clap your hands or raise your hands in praise and worship, but we came here with intention to lift up our voices and to magnify him. I want to spend a little while this evening in the book of Acts chapter 26, and so if you want to just join me there. And we're going to just talk about uh, this particular passage. I love the book of Acts. 
Amen. I've spent many, many years intentionally reading uh, the book of Acts every year again and again over and over because it is such a historical and foundational point of our lives and certainly of the New Testament church. In Acts 26, we find here just honing in on one particular chapter or portion, we read the story of Paul. Paul is standing in judgment and he is standing in the courtroom of Agrippa. And as Paul stood there, he certainly had every reason to be concerned for his life. This was a very, very serious matter. However, in the process of this hearing, as we may call it today, uh, King Agrippa granted Paul permission to speak in his own defense. And so if we were to begin reading at the beginning of chapter 26, uh, this is what we would find. For the sake of time, I'm just going to outline this conversation. In verses 4 and 5, Paul gives an account of his education from his youth up, and he had every right to speak of that because Paul uh, was, uh, was a man that has, had credentials, and so he could speak eloquently of what the Lord had or, or where he had come from, his upbringing. In verses 6 through 8, he speaks about uh, the Jews that had persecuted him for the gospel that he was preaching. In verses 9 through 11, he talks about how that he himself had been a, a great persecutor of the church and how that great slaughter had come at his very hands. In verses 12 through 15, he shares with Agrippa his own personal story of conversion and how on the road to Damascus, the bright light that came, blinding him for several days and the Lord speaking to him. And then verses 26 or 16 through 23, he talks about his not only call to ministry, but his, uh, his embracing that call of ministry. And he, he talks about in the concluding verses about his acceptance of that call and how God was using him. So now, if you will, with me, just follow the plot line carefully. As you're reading the scripture, you need to understand that from time to time, the camera changes. It pans over here for a while, it pans over here for a while, and so you, you've got to keep up with the ebb and flow of what the scripture is talking about. And so up to this point, Paul is standing in the courtroom, and you can envision that in your own way, and he is speaking to King Agrippa, addressing him. But we have to understand that just like in our court system today, there were other people that were in that room. There were others there. And so as Paul is stating his defense, as he is speaking about his upbringing, where he's come from, the call of God, how he himself uh, had persecuted the church, and now where God had called him to now be a minister of the gospel to build the New Testament church, seemingly out of nowhere. There is a voice that speaks up, and so, if you will, the camera pans to another point of the courtroom, and there's a man by the name of Festus that is speaking up. And he boldly declared, interrupting uh, the flow of the Apostle Paul's conversation, and he said, Paul, we believe that you're a madman. We believe that so much learning has just caused you to slide off the rails, and you're believing in something that there could absolutely be no merit or truth to. And so in this one instant, Paul no longer is addressing Agrippa and he addresses Festus. And in verse number 25, Paul said emphatically, he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. 
Or in essence, he said, what I am speaking of are clear and concise, true, and they are rational words. Now, that's a bold move if you're the condemned. That's a bold move if you're the condemned. And so he's standing before his accusers, but he wasn't through with Festus yet. In verse number 26, Paul continued, again, realizing he is still talking to Festus. In verse 26, he said, For the king, speaking of Agrippa, that's right there in the same room, he said, The king knoweth these things, before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. <laughs> Amen. I'm, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but we've got to be on the same page right here. Agrippa, Paul is standing before Agrippa. He is pleading his case. Festus interrupts the proceedings and says, we think you just have lost your mind that you are believing in, confessing, and now that you're propagating this gospel. And so Paul, as firmly and boldly and yet respectfully as he possibly could, he said, I am not a madman, for what I am speaking is the truth. As a matter of fact, he said, that man, Agrippa, he knows what I'm saying is true. Amen, I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him because this, what I'm talking about, has not played out in a corner. This didn't happen in a back room. This man that is the judge, this man is the king, but he knows what I am saying is true. Kind of an awkward moment, wouldn't you think? And then Paul turns his attention back to King Agrippa. And he says to King Agrippa, out of the middle of nowhere, he asked the question of the ages. He said in verse 27, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? As he just got through telling Festus, this man knows that I'm telling the truth. This man knows what I'm preaching has not been played out in a corner. And then on a dime, he looks at, at Agrippa and says, do you believe the prophets? Now he wasn't asking him, King Agrippa, do you believe me? He didn't say, Are you, have you bought into Paul's Ministries Incorporated? No, he said, do you believe the prophets? He mean, he, the, the question went much, much deeper than do you just believe me? He's asking him, do you believe Moses? And do you believe Isaiah? And do you believe Jeremiah? Do you believe the prophets? And before the king could dare even answer him, Paul answered his own question and he said, I know you believe. Now this is a pretty bold display because he has addressed one that's trying to shame him he has confirmed to, the, to that one the accuser that this man even knows that it's true and then he asked him do you believe the prophets Amen. and then he says I know that you believe Amen. Paul knew that he was not only that he was a believer but he also knew that King Agrippa was a corrupt man and that he was living a corrupt life and in short Paul understood that King Agrippa was a double-minded man and that's why he made the statement that still hangs in the balances to this very day in Acts chapter 2, 26, or Acts chapter 26 and verse 28 whenever Agrippa says back to him, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost you have persuaded me to be a Christian. You see, there was 
little left to say at this very moment of such bold clarity in the courtroom. There was little more left to say. Do you believe? I know you believe. And he said, almost. You have persuaded me to do that. Now, I believe that the landscape of the church in, even in our current society is dotted with the lives of people that have they themselves said almost. Almost. You know people in your own personal life, friends, maybe even family members that have walked right to the edge and they have tasted, they have seen, they have held it, they have experienced it. Amen. I'm not out here by myself, am I? Amen, and they said, almost you have persuaded me, but I've got to turn and walk back the other way. Now, Paul was called by Jesus to be a witness, and so before he was in prison, he traveled, and he traveled extensively through Asia Minor, preaching and teaching the word of God. And we find throughout the New Testament, record after record of Paul's faithfulness to the ministry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, he records his response to the persecution that he himself had endured and those that were with him. Paul said that they were mistreated, but in spite of the opposition they received, that he said God has given us the courage to get up and try again. Yes, we have been knocked down, and yes, we have been turned down, and yes, we have been shamed and are attempted to be shamed, and yes, we have, we have not been treated well, but God in every instance has given us the courage to just keep traveling and to move on. Paul was a man of great conviction and he was a man of great passion. Here was the man, Saul, that was a zealot against the church, but after such a marvelous transformation, he became that and more for the church. And so here is a man that truly understood the bitter taste of what it was like to be wrong and be sincerely wrong. We know that Paul spoke of having a thorn in his side or a thorn in the flesh. Through the years, I'm sure many have wondered what that may have been. and I've heard a lot of discussion about that through the years and been asked that question through the years. Of course, the scripture is silent, absolutely silent on the measure, and so we don't have any concise answer. But I personally have wondered, and I've shared this many times, but I personally have wondered if uh, if that thorn in the flesh of Paul or his side could not have been the guilt from the past persecution that he had inflicted upon the church because he was now traveling to churches where there were widows and there were orphans because of, of his evil ways before. Uh, there's no way to prove that. I'm not here to even attempt to do that. But this is what we know, that Paul spent years after the fact preaching and teaching and reaching for everyone that he possibly could with the gospel. He worked diligently to lead. He worked diligently to influence people positively for the kingdom of God. And because of that, he endured persecutions that often slowed him down. As a matter of fact, Paul, without question, endured seasons of imprisonment that seemingly stopped him altogether. Nevertheless, he was faithful despite his times and seasons of persecution and imprisonment and often writing the epistles that we know from a prison cell. Amen. God was have, had his hand mightily upon the Apostle Paul, but I will tell you this, that I believe the Apostle Paul had his hand in the hand of God. Amen. This wasn't a one-way street. This wasn't a one-way situation, but God had put his hand on Paul, and Paul had reached back not only to embrace God, but the call of God that was upon his life. 
Now, the setting of Acts chapter 26 takes us to an unorthodox place, really. But even in a courtroom, the apostle Paul took advantage of the moment to be a witness. I'm not going to cower. I'm not going to be silenced. I know that my life, understanding Paul got the picture. He understood clearly where he was. That this was not a time, this could be a time, of course, in his flesh to say what needed to be said to tickle the ears of man. But Paul said, I've got to take advantage of this moment and I've got to be what God has called me to be. Amen. I believe that that in the heart of Paul, he was, uh, he was thankful, appreciative, deeply appreciative to have the opportunity to not only be able to speak, but to speak to the audience that had gathered in that room that day. He was speaking to the king and those that were gathered with him, including Festus and many other dignitaries and leaders. And so if we look back at previous chapters of the book of Acts and prior to his presentation before Agrippa, we know that Paul had faced an angry mob in Jerusalem and that was what initiated his initial arrest. That's what brought him to this day. After that time, he courageously stood before Festus and others and it was here that he shared his testimony. But this did not improve his situation. Amen. As a matter of fact, he was still held captive until he was finally given an opportunity to now stand where we are talking tonight in the book of Acts 26 before Agrippa. I think it's safe to assume that Paul could have stood with mixed emotions on this day. He was honored to have the chance to have his case heard, of course, by an official that was not just an everyday man. He understood that the man that is hearing me, the man that is hearing my testimony understands what I'm saying is the truth. That's why he could say, this man, he knows it's true. He knows it's right. This didn't play out in a corner. He realized that God was fulfilling as well some of the promises that he had made in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. It was here that the Lord told him, he said, I am calling you to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. Amen. The Lord said, I'm going to let you bear my name. Now, Paul may not have envisioned at that moment that he was going to be a prisoner standing before a king. He may not have envisioned that he was going to be in a courtroom pleading for his life, but the Lord said, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring you before the Gentiles and I'll bring you before kings. And so guess what, Paul? This may not have been how you envisioned it, but God has you in the presence of a king. And so what are you going to do today? And so I ask us the church. Amen. We may not have ever envisioned the church being where we are today, but I'm going to tell you the eyes of the world are looking at the church. Amen. Hear me again. The eyes of the world is looking at the church. Are we going to tuck and run? Amen. Are we going to cower in fear? Are we going to stand and say, God, I'm going to put my trust and my confidence in you. We're going to stand, Lord. We're going to stand. We're going to stand. I believe that Paul was eminently aware that he could remain in captivity. I believe he was eminently aware that even by saying what he's saying could, could even be worse than captivity. He could lose his life. Nevertheless, Paul spoke without fear and favor. I'm thankful for the voices in my life that have just spoken with clarity. Amen. I'm not just saying this to have something to say, but I'm thankful that they didn't speak or that they did speak without fear and favor. They just preached the infallible, unadulterated word of God. Aren't you thankful that somebody just preached truth? 
Amen. They didn't know if you were going to like it. They weren't trying to package it in some way as to demean its value, but they just preached truth to us. Amen. Thankful for truth. It only stands to reason that Paul would have known Agrippa's background, but Paul also knew that words alone are never going to reach the heart of man, will never reach the heart of man. And so to the Corinthian church, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and 4, he said, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I didn't just come to try to bedazzle you, but we came with demonstration of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I'm thankful for all uh, the, the, the gifts that God has placed within the church. I, I am incredibly humbled by the gifts that God has placed, the giftedness that God has placed in the church the gifts of, of mankind to be able to invest and to pour in and put in and to organize the efforts of the church in the day in which we're living. But I will tell you today that we cannot think that it will be enticing words of man's wisdom. It will not be some program that we put together. It will be not some effort that we organize that will pull a person out of sin. We're going to have the, have to have the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God moving in our midst. I'm not just talking about turning up the noise. I'm not just talking about raising the volume, trying to sing the song a little bit faster. We need the power and the anointing of God to break loose and to break forth and to touch the hearts of men. Amen. I believe that we ought to pray prayers in our homes that affect the lives in other homes. We ought to be able to pray prayers in this house that affects the lives of people in other houses. Amen. The spirit and the power of God can reach where we cannot. It can go where we dare not imagine. Let your spirit and your anointing flow through the church, dear Lord. Paul knew that his earthly wisdom and that no matter how cleverly he crafted a message, it would never be enough to touch the hearts of people and to truly stir the soul of a person. I've seen a lot of people's lives stirred. <laughs> but something needs to stir our soul because you can't walk away from a soul stirring. Something, you gotta do something about it. You gotta do something about it. Paul depending, depended on God showing up. Paul depended on God demonstrating the supernatural. And I will tell you today, while I am thankful that you are here in person in this service tonight, I'm thankful that you showed up. But it would not be enough if just you and I came into this house. We need the power and the presence of Almighty God to touch us. Amen. Paul depended on the Spirit of God. He was not ashamed of his testimony. He was not ashamed of the supernatural things that God had, had, had revealed and done in his life and he certainly was not ashamed of the gospel. I don't believe that we should ever be ashamed to speak for the Lord. And that may be in a very, very formal setting but it could be in a very informal way that God gives us an opportunity to share what we know that God can do in the life of others because of what he's done in our own life. And I believe that we should embrace our call from God and that we should use the, the, the power that God has given the church to be a witness. And we should not accept 
that without understanding that there may be some sorrow that comes our way. People want the prize without the pain. We want the least resistance, the path of least resistance. But I understand today that if you're going to stand for something, you're going to have to pay a price for standing up for something. Amen. If it's worth if it's worth standing for, it's worth fighting for. Amen. In truth, if we looked at this story, if we were to put ourselves perhaps in the skin of Festus, and we were to just look at all of this from strictly an analytical point of view, we may tend to agree. He thought Paul had lost his mind. How could a sane man believe in another man named Jesus who was publicly whipped and publicly executed? And how could you possibly say that that is your Savior? How could a sane man believe that this man was going to go to a grave and he was going to come back from the dead in three days. And so if we just break all of that down outside of faith, then we can ourselves find ourselves as cynical as Agrippa or as Festus was. How could this man, Paul, preach such a thing? But he did. Paul himself was a highly educated man. And so Festus was his accusation wasn't coming from from uh, Paul being an unlearned man, but Paul was now being accused by Festus of being an overlearned man. So much learning has made you a madman. You have gone off into the, uh, the point of no return. But I would tell you today that Paul, the uneducated man, was not ashamed to proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you and I should not be ashamed to declare the gospel of the Lord. No, everybody is not called to a pulpit ministry. Everybody's not gonna be a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, or everybody may not even be a teacher in, in, in any capacity of the church. But I believe that we are all called to ministry and that we all have a testimony to share of what God has done in our own lives. And so if we're ashamed to be a witness today, then why not? Why would not Jesus be ashamed of us on another day? That's what he said in Matthew. Matthew 10 and 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, he said, Him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So if you want, if you want to deny me, I'll deny you. But if you will confess me, I'll confess you. I don't know about you, but I want to be on the confessing side of this situation and not on the denying side of that. And so how can I tell you that God is not ashamed of his church? Even the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared them a city. Who is he referring to? Amen. In, 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 uh, in, in, in Hebrews 11, he is, referring to, he is referring to those heroes of the faith, that roll call of the heroes of faith. He said, I'm not ashamed of them. Amen. As a matter of fact, I've prepared a city for them. I'm going to do something powerful. I'm going to do something mighty in their lives. 
I believe that we are blessed today to be a part of the household of faith. I am blessed to be a part of the church. I am humbled to be alive. I understand how whimsical it can sound and how whimsical it may be even in our minds to think what it might have been like to have been alive in the days of the apostles and what it might have been like to have walked with the Lord and talked with him. But I'm gonna tell you today, while I have great reverence for those and I have great respect for those, I'm thankful that I'm alive in 2020. I'm glad I'm a part of the 21st century New Testament church. Amen. God did not put us here by accident. God, we didn't just arbitrarily find ourselves here today, but God has planted us. He said the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. Not talking about male and female, but the steps. You're here today because God ordered your steps. I believe you're here tonight because God has ordered your steps and my steps. Hallelujah. God said, I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not ashamed of them. I've prepared a great city for them. Yes, I have. Amen. We're blessed to be a part of the household of faith. And as children of God, we not only belong to God, but we belong to one another. Our Father. (laughs) Our Father. I'm thankful that puts me in the family of God. Not my Father. Not just me and Jesus got our own thing going, but it's our Father. I'm glad to be a part of the kingdom of God. I'm glad to be a part of the family of God. Hallelujah. God has touched us and brought us together. And so I don't want to be ashamed of him, but I want to tell you furthermore, I don't want to be ashamed of of those that God has put in the family of God. And so you need to be careful when you start talking about people that God has put his name on and put his blood on. And if God has put his hand on them, then you better take your hands off of them. I'm glad to be a part of the family of God. I want to be a part of the... Amen. I don't want to just be a part in number. I want to just be a part in, uh, in, in, in number, but I want to be a part in my heart. I want to be woven together with a cord that can't be broken. Every born-again believer, amen, we belong to the same family, and God is not ashamed to call us his own. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say in chapter 2. He said in chapter 2, verse 11, but both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren amen he said the one that sanctified and those that have been sanctified are all one yes we think different and yes we walk different we've got some Chevrolet people in the church we've got some Ford people in the church we've got some Dodge people in the church <laughs> amen Amen. But those things don't separate us. Those things don't, you know, I'm not talking about cars, don't leave. Amen. We've got all kind of things that are in the church, but that's not what's going to separate us. Amen. I'm thankful for the power of God because the one that sanctified, amen, is the one that sanctified all of us. I'm thankful for the power of the Lord. I'm thankful for his anointing. I'm thankful for his love. I'm thankful that his forgiveness flowed. It didn't just flow down my street but it flowed down my driveway and to my front door, amen, into my heart and into my life. Hallelujah. If the Lord redeemed you and he redeemed me and he redeemed others, I want to say, Lord, I'm thankful to be a part of the family of God. And so I say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, let the church rise and be the church. Let us be the church. Praise God.
praise God. As Paul ministered, he was not deterred by the response of people. Now, I'm going to tell you, just from a totally speaking point of view, that it's a whole lot easier to speak when people are with you than when they are not with you. And I've been in both situations and all points in between. But Paul was not deterred by whether or not people responded. He was not dissuaded by their response. And so every speaker here tonight can understand this, that you have got to learn and you have got to discipline yourself to not just preach for amens. Amen. <laughs> you just got to understand if the Lord gave you something to say, say it. I want to tell you, I've gone home a lot, many, many times when I thought the response was going to be way different than it was. But you got to preach what the Lord gives you to preach. Amen. And so not every person that heard Paul preach was converted. I preached a lot of messages where people got up and walked out that needed what I was preaching. Not, not because I was preaching, but because I was in the book. They needed the truth of this word to unlock something in their lives. And they got up and walked out. Well, I'm not going to put my Bible on eBay. I'm not going to throw in the towel and cash in the chips. Paul almost persuaded Agrippa. The king was convicted and likely convinced. According to Paul, he was because he, he said so publicly. He knows I'm telling the truth. I mean, he called him out. But he was not willing to let go and let God have control of his life. However... The Apostle Paul just kept preaching. The Lord himself said to his disciples, Go, go. And if they receive you, they receive you. But if they don't receive you, he said, Shake the dust off of your garment and just keep going. Just keep going because somebody will hear. Now I want to tell you that there's few things that's more discouraging than investing and pouring into people's lives and them walking away. You've taught Bible studies and poured and invested in your life, your life into other people's lives who have just said thank you but no thank you. And sometimes said nothing. <laughs> and it can be very discouraging. But Paul gives us a great example of what you do. You just go to another city. And you just open your Bible again. And you just teach again. Amen. He stood in chains before a, a court with nobility and leaders. His very life and freedom was at stake. Yet he was more concerned about sharing the gospel than going home a free man. Now there is no record, absolutely no record of the king's conversion. But Paul left there and just kept preaching. And he just kept going. Amen. As a matter of fact, Acts 28 31 tells us that he went preaching and teaching like this, with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Not with arrogance. Not, I'm not being pompous tonight, not, not at all. If you read that in me, you're, you're misreading me. But he had confidence in the word of God. And if you will receive this, you're receiving the Lord. And if you reject this, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting the Lord. Amen.
Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and ask our musicians to come. So this evening we have spent a little time talking about the subject of shame. Hebrews 12 and 2 said that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And then he uses this phrase, despising the shame. One writer said, putting his foot on shame. Totally disregarding, devaluing shame. For the first time ever in the book of Genesis, when sin was introduced in the Garden of Eden, shame was introduced. Adam and Eve hiding themselves when the Lord came to visit. But on the cross, he took care of shame. He took care of that. And yes, I believe that even today, that there can be a measure of shame that people try to inflict on you and I for your faith. People would devalue, demean, and mock your faith. Amen. Irrespective of whether it's happened to you, it's happened to me. Not just privately mocking, but publicly mocking. Trying to shame. However, for the joy that's set before us, we should just keep marching on. Because I want to say it again, people are not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. Amen. And the world often shames those that share a message of true freedom and hope. But if you think about it this way, that what causes some shame in this life frees us from shame in the next life. In Romans 1 and 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. When Jesus asked the disciples if they wanted to leave, when people were exiting the church in mass, thank God <laughs> for that outspoken Simon Peter that just cleared the air and he said, to whom else would we go? For thou hast the words to eternal life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know you can count me in. And so the more Paul preached, the more he was shamed, persecuted, imprisoned. But he, but he never gave up. And I believe that that should be the marching order of the church. We never know, we, and would never know. Of course, John lets us know that everything that happened could not be recorded so we may never know all the suffering that Paul endured and we may know, never know all the suffering that others have endured. But I believe that we need to be a witness in this hour. If ever, if ever, if ever, God let us be a witness in this hour. Before the Titanic struck that iceberg on that fateful night, history records that messages were sent to warn them. But because everything looked okay, the people that received the messages didn't pass them on. They knew they had been warned. But they said, all is well, all is well. 
And so they never sent out a message of warning to the people that truly needed to hear it. And as a result, 1,500 people lost their lives. They died because the people who knew differently chose to remain silent. Another tragedy of the, that fateful night is found in the lifeboats aboard that ship. The Titanic carried 20 lifeboats, which would have been enough to save 1,200, nearly 1,200, just under 1,200 people. However, the boat was not designed to just carry 20 lifeboats. It was designed to carry 32 lifeboats. But someone thought, this is cluttering the deck. And so we want to take 12 away and just leave 20 because we want everything to look nice and be pristine. In addition to that, the lifeboats were designed to carry, the lifeboats that were designed to carry people to their safety from this sinking ship were not even filled to capacity. According to some documents, at least one lifeboat that was designed to hold 65 people only had 40 people reportedly aboard. Who knows exactly why? Why would there be room for more and you sail on and you sail away? <laughs> Was it that people were that self-centered that as long as I'm in the boat, what difference does it really make? Someone said, is it that they did not want to risk turning around to think that someone in a panic may turn the boat over trying to save themselves. It's amazing. It's amazing to me, sadly. <laughs> it's amazing to me how people that have the Holy Ghost don't want to be bothered by rolling up their sleeves, dirtying their hands, spending their time and their money, their effort and their energy to save others. We'll show up for picnic dinners. We'll show up for this or show up for that. But please don't ask me to be a witness. Please don't expect me to teach a Bible study. Please don't expect me to sit down with a family and invest in them. Amen. Safe people in a boat kept sailing. But hear me. In order for them to keep sailing, they had to ignore hundreds of voices that were crying out for help. Can I tell you? that 1,500 people did not have to die. They did not have to die. Some died because those that were saved didn't want to run the risk of going back. I want to bring this home. Sharing the gospel has its risks. You risk rejection. You risk being made fun of. You risk someone calling you holier than thou. You risk being avoided you risk being asked questions that you don't really have the answers to that you're going to have to study and dig out for yourself. Yes, there's risk. There's risk. But when someone is dying, it's a risk worth taking. It's a risk.
This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.